Well, good morning, everyone. For the five people who responded. But good morning, everyone. Good to be with you again. So I'm um, quite excited this morning because we're introducing a new sermon series, a new uh, theme that we're going to be working through over the next few months. It's not going to be every week, but we are going to work our way through it eventually. And we're going to look at the Ten Commandments, look at God's law. Now, when you come to God's law, there tends to be two pitfalls that tend to happen. The first one I find is quite common with people I speak to who are not Christians, and unfortunately, sometimes Christians. And that's essentially this, that every person is born neutral. And if you live a life as a good person, doing good things, then when you die, you can go to heaven. But if you've not done the good things and you've, and you've overall been a bad person, then you go to hell. And so really, the law is absolutely essential because you need to know what things are good and what things are bad. But the other pitfall, uh, well, uh, let me, before we move on, let's just say, that's completely wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not Christianity, and we're going to deal with that specifically this morning. But the other pitfall that I find a lot of Christians tend to fall into is, ugh, why do I need the law? I've got Jesus. I'm fine. And again, uh, I think what that does is, well, in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we find that that's also not a good option if we want to be people who follow and love Jesus and, and want to pursue him with our life. So we're going to kind of answer that question this morning of, okay, well, what do we do with the law? Why the law? And so we're going to start this sermon series in the Ten Commandments in a place very different from the Ten Commandments. So if you, if you know the Bible, then you probably know that the Ten Commandments are found in the book of Exodus. That's the second book of the Bible, so very, very early on in the Old Testament. And we're actually going to go much, much further along in the Bible, and we're going to go to the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, turn there with me. Uh, if you don't, it should be on the screen. But just keep it open if you do have a Bible, because I want us to really engage with this passage. So we're starting in verse 7. Now, I should say that this comes after a long discussion that Paul's had about the fact that the law condemns and Christ saves. So he now comes to this point where he says this. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin... Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, spring, uh, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Okay. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to the deep things of your word. We come to the question of what it means to live as people reflecting the image of God. And, the, and Lord, as we've already heard this morning in the psalm that we read, the law is good. Your ways are righteous. They are like gold. They're like honey. They're good for the soul. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So, Lord, may the thoughts of my heart and the meditations of my mouth be pleasing um, in your sight. Amen. Okay, so what does this passage have to tell us? I think there's two big things, and then they relate to each other. So let's kind of deal with them in turn and then see how they relate. The first thing is, there is a big problem with me. I am a sinner. And what that means is it's not simply that I do bad things. If you look at what it says, it says that sin was in me and it saw the commandment and it used that as an opportunity to do things. So the picture there is not just I do bad things. The picture there is I am a bad person. It's deep. It's really foundational to who we are. There is something broken inside me that expresses itself in actions. So the way that Genesis 4, for instance, talks about this. God says to Cain, beware, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you. There's a picture of sin there being like a, a wild animal that's going to leap on you and have, it under, have you under its control. So if we think of sin as just kind of neutral people doing bad things every now and again, we've missed the point. It's kind of like um, COVID, coronavirus. Someone says, oh, what's coronavirus? Oh, it's, you get a sore throat and you, you sneeze and you feel rough and so on and so forth. It's like, well, well no, actually. Coronavirus is, an, is a tiny little living thing inside of you and it produces sneezing and sore throats and feeling rough and so on and so forth. So there is a kind of a really clear connection between the actions, the sinful actions that we do and the, the, the state that we are sinners so they're they're clearly connected but sin most kind of concentrated is the problem inside of us so again let me just read what Paul says here I would not know what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet but sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting did you hear the point there? The sin is already there, and then it acts itself out in things. So that the problem that this says is, there is a big problem with me. There is a big problem with us. But the second thing it says is, the law of God is good. The law of God, for instance, it says is holy and righteous and good. Because the law of God reflects the very character of God. God is holy and righteous and good. And God, doesn't, God isn't in heaven saying, well, I'm good, but I'm going to command you to do something that's not good. Everything that comes forth from the mouth of God reflects his character. If he says, do this, it tells you this is a good thing to do. So 
the law shows us what kind of God we have. And therefore, whatever the law says is holy and righteous and good, just as its author is holy and righteous and good. So how do these things relate to each other then? Well, the problem is, if the law is good and we are not, then what does the law do to us but show us how bad we are? So, I think of an example of, well, not proud to say the story, but I didn't, I didn't really get on with my teachers in secondary school. I didn't really like school, to be honest. Didn't really like people having authority over me. Um, caused a bit of trouble. I remember, I remember one parents' evening, my dad sitting down with my tutor, my, who was my, my English teacher, and she said, um, Joshua is a master of psychology. And I, thought dad, I saw dad go, oh, okay. And she went, he likes to find the easiest way to wind up the teacher, and once he's found it, he'll use it. And then obviously at that point, it's then the, the look. And I'm... But I had, I had two different science teachers, and one of them had the attitude of kind of, I'm going to teach whether or not there's people in the classroom or not. It doesn't really matter what's going on, I'm just going to say what needs to be said. And so we could just cause chaos and nothing would be done. The other science teacher I had, she actually cared about making sure that the students were taking something in, were learning. She actually cared about the subject. And so with her, I used to get sent out of the classroom a lot. I used to get detentions a lot. My mum and dad knew well her name. Um, from me coming home and complaining about her. But the point there is that it's not that the first science teacher was good because I didn't get in trouble. The second one was good, and because she was a good teacher and I was a bad student, that was a problem to me. And so I started to not like her, and I came home and I complained about her, and I said, oh, she's out to get me, and so on and so forth. But actually, the problem was I was not good, she was. And so from my perspective, she became an enemy, which is exactly what happens with the law. It does not come to us with compassion. It does not come to us with grace. It simply says, this is the rule. And the problem is, I am broken and I can't follow those rules. I mean, just think about how deeply they go. Paul says, the, the command says, don't covet. That's not an action. That's an inclination in your heart. So it's not just telling me, don't go and do this thing with your hands. It's saying, reform your thinking. But the law has no power to reform the thinking. The law has no power to actually change you from the inside out. It can show you how you should be, and therefore it keeps poking you and saying, and you're not like this. But it can't actually do anything to change you from the inside out. And so, from our perspective, like Paul says, does it become death to me? Am I supposed to then hate the Lord? Does it become death? By no means. This happens in order that sin might be recognized as sin. It used what is good, the commandments of God, to bring about my death, so that through the commandments, sin might become utterly sinful. I was having a conversation with someone the other day, and I said to them, do you think you're a good person? They said, yeah, generally, I think I am. Would you feel confident to stand before God according to his goodness and say, I am as good as I should be? And he thought about it for a minute and he went, 
No, 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 I definitely wouldn't want to do that. Well, why could he think that? Because he was thinking for a moment, well, hang on a second, do I do this? Do I do that? Do I do this? No. And actually, when you see the level of righteousness that God looks for, you very quickly say, there is something very wrong with me. I am not like that. So sin, empowered by the law, kills us. But that's not the end of the story. Because the reason why Paul's bringing this up now is because there is a gospel message. There is the message of Jesus. And that deals with the law. He comes to us as lawbreakers and says, there is a debt that you cannot pay. It's too much. And so I will pay it for you. You Think about it like this, right? If the bank sends you a a note saying you are £100,000 in debt, that doesn't necessarily mean and you have enough money to pay us back. It says nothing about ability. It just says there is a debt that weighs on you whether or not you can pay it back. And you say, well, I, I'm sorry, I, I, can't, I can't pay that much money. I can't pay that debt off. Maybe I should bump it up to a million, million pounds. Or even more. An infinite debt is how the Bible describes it. And you say, I'm sorry, I, I cannot pay that back. That is unreasonable. And the bank doesn't say, oh, well, fair enough. It, the debt still exists, whether you have the ability to or not. But if someone comes along and says, I'm going to cover it. I will pay the debt. I am able and I will. You can't then go to the bank after it's been paid and said, I would like to pay some in. They say, well, sorry, the debt is already paid. There is nothing left to pay off. So it's not like God comes along, Jesus comes along, and he, and he dies in our place on the cross, and he takes the blame, and he absorbs the wrath of God that should be on us for all our lawlessness. And then he says, right, I've paid 90% of the way, Now you can make up the last 10%. Because, hey, guess what? I still have that problem deep down. So if I say, right, well, I can manage 10%. Well, in my managing that 10%, I've bumped it up to a bigger debt and a bigger debt and a bigger debt. And I end up right at the same place I did at the beginning. I need a savior. So that does then bring us to this question. So what do we do with the law? Do we just rip it out of our Bibles? Do we just say, I've got Jesus, I'm okay. And this is a question that has been thought about a lot in the history of the church. People have tried to engage with it. And I think there has actually been some really rich, helpful answers that have come out throughout the history of the church. Now, historically, what theologians have talked about is there are three uses of the law. We're going to focus on use one and use three. But the three uses of the law that theologians tend to talk about... Uh, The first use is it drives you to Christ. That's kind of what we've been talking about. It shows you you have a problem. You are broken. You have a debt. You can't do this. You keep failing at this. You keep trying to do that, but you're not doing that. So it drives us to Christ because we reach this point of despair and say, but God, I can't keep these laws. I've not murdered anyone, but I'm still hating people in my heart. I'm still coveting things. I still want things that aren't mine. I'm still not satisfied. I still don't love my neighbor as myself. I still don't love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the law says, you're right, you don't. Do better. 
But then we reach that point of desperation and we say, there must be a saviour. And that's when we find Christ. And that's where sweetness is applied to our souls. That's where we're soothed. That's when we're told, yes, you are lawless. You do need a saviour. But guess what? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so if you come to a point where you say, I am a sinner, Jesus says, well, that's my speciality. So the Lord drives us to him. And that's not just if you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, certainly, we need to be aware, well, we need to make non-Christians aware that they have a problem before God. And if you are here today as a non-Christian and you think, well, I'm fine, go to the law, you will find you're not fine. But also if we are a Christian, we also need to come to a place of repentance daily because otherwise we just start skirting over things which are problems in our life. We start to think, Jesus was helpful to me a few years ago, but I'm actually doing all right on my own now. The Lord drives us to a saviour. We need that. The second use of the law, which we're not going to spend time on, we're not going to focus on at all, is, is just simply that it shows the civil government what is good and what is bad, so what they should enforce. So, for instance, it tells the magistrate that murder is wrong, so they should enforce that. But what I do want to spend some time on is the third use of the law. And this one, I think, is really quite undervalued today, because the third use of the law kind of does this. It says, right, I've come to that place where I say... I need a saviour. I can't do this. There is something wrong with me. And we've found Christ and we go, my goodness, he is wonderful. He is good to me. He's soothing to my soul. And then we say, like the psalmist in Psalm 40, here I am, Lord. I delight to do your will. But what is it? We come to the Lord and we find, ah, this is how I can reflect God's goodness in my life. I'm going to love my wife because it tells me not to commit adultery. I'm going to value the things that I have and not always be constantly looking for the things that other people have because it tells me not to covet. I'm going to love my brother because it tells me not to murder. It, it helps us to see what kind of lives we should live. Now, it's very important that we then don't get to a point where we say, but I've not done that and I've not done that because the third use is good and the first use is good, but let's not kind of confuse them. See, see what I mean? We, we want to be people who delight in the law of God, not in any sense because we think it earns us favor with God. You know, right now I'm a level one Christian. If I manage to keep the Ten Commandments for a month, I'm going to be a level two Christian. A year, I'll be a level three Christian, so on and so forth. It's just not how it works at all. We come to the law knowing this is good for me, I want to follow it, and I'm going to do a terrible job. But my identity is already fixed in Jesus. That debt is already paid. The Spirit is at work in me, and it's not finished yet. And so we come with a delight. You think about what Jesus says. He says, if you truly love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is not saying, keep my commandments and then you will love me. He is saying, if your heart has been melted before the goodness of God, if 
the fear of the Lord is a reverent fear rather than a terrified fear. If Jesus is the thing that satisfies you beyond anything that this world can, then you say, I want to do what he says. He is my Lord. I come to him as someone who wants to listen. I come to him as someone who wants to obey. I come to him as someone who needs him, who wants to be more Christ-like. And so the law stops being death to us. The law stops being a means of guilt. The law stops being this weight that rests upon us, that keeps us down and down and down. The law instead becomes, like what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, Psalm 119, Psalm 40, I delight to do your will. It is good to me. Psalm 19 says, um, sorry, sorry, not Psalm 19. Um, Psalm 40 says, I have sinned against you, Lord, but the delight of your law is in my heart. The person who wrote that is not saying, I keep the law and I'm perfect at it and therefore God loves me. What he's saying is, I fall short. I keep messing up, but I delight in you, Lord, and I delight to do what you tell me to do. If you think about it in the Bible, there's often that phrase, um, it will be written on your heart. The law will be written on your heart. And this, this phrase refers to not just kind of seeing the law and thinking, these are things I should do, but it being internalized in the heart, saying, these are the things I want to do. You know, like, I use this fairly often, it might be overdone, but it's, it's ever relevant. I love Anna very deeply, very richly. And so, if I can do a favour for her, it's not like, well, I guess I've got to do it because you know we made a covenant in the presence of God and witnesses, so best, I, best go and do it. Yeah, I mean, that is true. We did make a covenant before God and witnesses. And I did say publicly that I was going to honour her and serve her the rest of my life. But I also love her. And so I quite like doing those things because they're in my heart. Now, in the same way, I come to the law of God and I say, this is the covenant that I've entered into with God. I've come to be part of this covenant people, and so these things apply to me. But as it happens, I also quite like God. In fact, I love Jesus because of what he's done to me. And so I delight in doing his will. Now, I think if we grasp this, this actually helps to make sense of the Ten Commandments in their own context. Because if you just read the Bible as though we get to this bit, that's a list of rules, and then we move on, then there's loads of stories, then Jesus comes along. We actually miss why God gives the Ten Commandments. So, so let me kind of act this out a little bit. So you've got Israelites, here they are, they're in slavery. I shouldn't say them too much, I'm just going to walk around the stage basically. They're in slavery. Here they are, and they're bound, and they're crying out to God for help. We are in need. So God comes along and he says, I'm going to give freedom. I'm going to send Moses and he is going to speak to Pharaoh and I'm going, to, I'm going to make a show of these false gods. I'm going to defeat the gods of Egypt and I'm going to bring you to myself. So Israel comes. They've been shown this incredible act of graciousness from God as they leave the bondage and slavery that they were once in. And God says, I brought you to, my, to myself as on the wings of eagles. I love you and so I brought you to myself. 
And, and Exodus 19 is kind of very clear on the fact that this is all about God's grace in saving his people. Let's just turn that very quickly.
or by pride in our own obedience. Lord, I just pray that we would come to your law as you intend, not as a means of righteousness, not as a means for us to pay the debt that's already been paid, but as people who delight in your law, people who delight in your goodness. Be at work in us by your spirit, we pray. Always bring to mind your death on the cross, the punishment that we should not take you took on our behalf. And Lord, as we come to your law over the next few weeks and months, as we come to these ten commandments that shape the character of your people, Lord, we pray that we come with hearts that are receptive, with hearts that are open, with hearts that long to hear from you and to live as you intend. In the name of Jesus, we pray.